Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel we have John Epperson. Hello, everybody. Luke Sutters. Hi. Luke Stutters. They're close Sorry. enough. And we have Matt Smith. Hey there. And today we are talking with a special guest, James Thompson. Hello. So James, would you mind explaining a little bit about who you are, who you work for, and all that good stuff? Yeah, sure. So I currently work as a software architect for Mavenlink out of our Salt Lake office. I've been working with them for a little over a year now since I returned after leaving for a short time. What was it? After helping opening up their Salt Lake office. I've been working in Ruby since 2006 and have been working professionally as a web developer since 2003. Got a background in Perl, PHP, and various other technologies that have suited me at various times. Awesome. Your app is slow and you probably don't even know it. Maybe it's fine in most places, but then the customer loads the page up, that one page, and after a couple of seconds, their attention disappears into Twitter and never comes back. The reality is there are performance issues in your app and they're affecting your customer experience. What you need to do is hook up your app to Scout APM and let it start telling you where the slowdowns are happening. It makes it really easy. It tells you how slow things are and what the problem is, like N plus one queries or memory bloat. It's also built for developers, so it makes it really easy to identify where the fix needs to go. I've hooked it up to some of my apps and I saw what I needed to fix in a couple of minutes. Try it today for free and they'll donate $5 to the open source project of your choice. Just go to scoutapm.com slash devchat and then deploy it to your app. Once you do that, they'll donate the five bucks. That's scoutapm.com slash devchat. Today we were having you on to talk about a recent RailsConf video that you did back in 2019 on errors, logging and errors. Would you mind giving us a high-level overview of that talk? Yeah, so the talk was uh, Building for Gracious Failure. And uh, it's a talk I uh, delivered at RailsConf last year. Also had an opportunity to deliver it at RubyConf the year before. And the main kind of thrust of the presentation centered around how do we address in a service-based system errors? And how do we prioritize what errors we want to fix? How do we recognize errors when they are creeping up on us? And and kind of focused on five different key themes, the idea of visibility, that we can't fix what we can't see, that we need to be focusing on restoring value. So looking at scale and impact of errors, that we should try to return what we can, um, and that we should accept what we can as well. And that we should also be very careful in terms of who we trust within a service-based system. All right. And so, yeah, let's dive into it because I think it's an interesting talk and it's one that people often overlook. They get so focused on developing of the actual application and stuff like application performance monitoring, error logging, error notifications, all that stuff's kind of afterthought. So when should we start worrying about errors that are coming up and how do we even notice that errors are coming up? Yeah, so I think that gets to kind of the first thing that I, I, I focused on in this, which is the idea of visibility and the reality that we can't fix what we can't see. Logs are a fairly coarse uh, way to recognize errors. They can be helpful, and especially when dealing with things at a small scale, local development, things of that nature, logs are usually sufficient uh, for what's going on and being able to see the errors that we care about. But once you deploy into like a production environment, once you have more than one uh, host system running your code, it becomes much more difficult to keep track of what errors are happening and where. And that's where tools like Bugsnag and other vendors that produce kind of error monitoring and alerting systems really start to show their value, helping you see, okay, what kinds of errors are you having? How frequently are they happening? And then potentially starting to answer that question of how many people are impacted by this error even. Yeah, absolutely. So does that mean that in production, logs are pretty much pointless or should we still retain them? And how long should we retain logs for? Yeah, I think uh, logs are still a valuable tool, uh, especially as we aggregate from multiple different services. They allow you to spot issues potentially that are crossing, at least in a service-based system, crossing service boundaries uh, or crossing boundaries between, say, an application and the database. They give you opportunities to potentially tie those events together and be able to examine them as a whole. 
So they're still valuable, but they become much more of a, okay, we know this is happening. And now let's dig into exactly what is going on at every layer of our system. And that's where the logs become useful because you're able to to go and look at them like in a particular slice of time, if you've got a, a good logging system to be able to see like what happened, when, are there any other correlated events that are happening alongside this error that we can, that we can track down, things of that sort. And I think the question of like how long to keep logs is really a question that's going to be based on the context of an individual system. So if you're in a, uh, a space that has compliance requirements, you're going to be told how long to keep your logs. If you're in an environment where you're building a hobby project, probably keeping them for, what was it, a couple of weeks or even a month uh, is probably sufficient in many cases. But the larger your customer base gets, uh, the, the more valuable having a longer window of logs can be in terms of investigation to see have we been having this error longer than we realized. And so there's, there's trade-offs that come up that help inform that part of the decision, I think. Yeah, for sure. And so when we're capturing logs, one of the things that I often see is that in a linear style application, so where you just have maybe a couple of web servers behind a load balancer, you don't have any background jobs, you're going to be able to kind of sift through those coarse logs pretty easily. But in a situation where you have logs being all gathered together in a more microservices level, it's really hard to even follow a single stack trace to even say, where was this request even coming from, which came into this microservice, which then caused this error? So do you have any advice for someone who is looking to have a better picture of how this error is getting triggered in those kind of situations? Yeah, so a lot of that will come down to like the technology choices that a team has made. There are tools out there, uh, things connected with some of the service mesh type approaches that are being used on Kubernetes and other container-based orchestration systems that allow for the supplying of, of what are either called collation IDs or correlation IDs. They're basically usually GUIDs that just get injected into the headers whenever, say, an HTTP request first comes in. And then the system has to be built to pass that ID along throughout the entirety of the service ecosystem. And that then becomes a way to be able to do distributed tracing, which has become kind of a necessary tool in a container-based environment and in a services-based environment for the exact reasons that you kind of called out that like, if you just bring all the logs together, you don't necessarily have the right level of visibility to be able to see, okay, how did we go from user requests to database failure? Like what were all the things that happened in between to get us there? And so having distributed tracing systems really becomes a necessity. And in most service-based systems, that's something you have to layer on top of whatever your existing architecture is and your existing infrastructure. I've never heard of that. What, what Can you give me an example of the, like, uh, I found open telemetry. Is that something you use? Yeah, so OpenTelemetry and other similar services uh, would provide uh, distributed tracing. A lot of service mesh systems that are being uh, developed and released for Kubernetes and the like will have their own distributed tracing systems that they'll either recommend uh, or that'll come baked into the solution. And so, yeah, there's there's several of them out there depending on exactly what uh, variety of Kubernetes cluster you're building in most cases to, to give you that uh, capability. There's also a number of homegrown solutions that have come out of certain companies like Netflix and whatnot. Yeah, I was able to see Netflix's microservices architecture. It's insane. It is truly crazy. It looks like something completely different. It doesn't look like programming or architecture at all. It just looks like this huge ball of intertwined mess. but you know, it's crazy how they do it. And for their scale, I think it works. Yeah, I, I have some, uh, what was it, uh, varied opinions on the value of services and microservices in general, having worked at uh, a company that was deploying them in which I think they, they moved to that approach too soon without enough understanding of like the trade-offs and the visibility needs. Some of the stuff that comes up like in any kind of service-based system is like you've got to have good observability, good traceability, uh, and you've got to be prepared for those things. And most teams, just those are the things they don't think about because they're not used to thinking about them in their in their monolithic code bases usually. Yeah. 
Speaking of scale, so I think it's really interesting, this entire topic in terms of scale. Scale is often the, I feel like, the easiest way to exemplify like why you would care about something other than logs, right? Hey, we need bug snag because we have you know, a lot of different errors coming in from a lot of different places. But I actually think like you, you encounter this at even a smaller scale than we've even mentioned so far. Because if you are running a super simple web app and maybe you're running Sidekick on the side, you right now, you're probably not writing in the same log file. I mean, it's a way harder hurdle to write in the same log file than it is to have two different log files. So you already have two different sources of errors, right? You already are running into this place where you need to decide how you're going to read both log files. So a tool like Bugsnag, I feel like definitely, I mean, I use it all the time for, for small toy projects. It's super helpful in that way. Totally on board with your visibility there. I used to use New Relic. Is that still going? Yeah, actually, we use uh, New Relic at Mavenlink uh, a fair bit. Uh, and it's actually got some, some good capabilities uh, for doing kind of the tracing within an application as well. It doesn't give quite the same experience that, say, Bugsnag does because of its, it's not focused strictly on error handling. But it will give you a, a good trace throughout your application from front end to back end when you do encounter errors. And, uh, and of course, then it also gives you helpful like performance metrics and things of that sort that uh, can be really, really beneficial as well. Yeah, the service that I really like one, mainly because they have a self-hosted option for free, is Sentry. So basically, most of my applications, I tag on to Sentry. And one of the things I like about it, and this is kind of where you were uh, pointing to, James, is the ability to see really how many people is this affecting and how often is it affecting it. So if I see that this issue, issue is coming in from several different users, and it's starting to rank up the number of events that it's creating, then I know that this is potentially a higher priority than one that only one user is getting affected only a small number of times. Right. And that's, that's something that's, I think, really important when we're talking about like how to handle errors is making sure that we actually are looking at that scope and impact radius how many people are affected by this? How much value is it costing them? How inconvenient is this for them? Because you can even have an issue that maybe is affecting a large number of users, but it's not particularly inconvenient. Maybe it's they're not getting uh, the thank you page after they finish the signup process, but the, everything else about the system is working. They're getting the, the acknowledgement email. They're, getting, they're able to complete the actual process or workflow that you have them in, uh, but they're having an issue with this one particular piece. And then you're able to have more valuable conversations about like, is this something that we need to fix right now? Or is there maybe something that's affecting maybe only a smaller number of users that's causing them to like have a show-stopping experience where they just want to cancel the use of our application or whatnot? And so, yeah, that's one of the nice things with, with things like Bugsnag, Century, New Relic. They start to give you a better picture to be able to have those conversations about how do we get value back to the folks that we're serving. And not only that, especially if your team is proactive, where you are actively monitoring the errors that are coming in to the point where you're able to say, okay, this is an issue. We see it's an issue. It's happening to multiple people. So it has a fairly large footprint. And then with a proper CICD development, you're able to get in there, get that bug fixed, release it, deploy it to your production environment before the error is ever even reported to the development team. So taking a very proactive approach, you're not going to get that just from parsing log files. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and I've had experiences like that as well, where in the process of doing development, release to a production environment, and then immediately see, oh, there's an issue here. It's like, okay, well, let's work on the mitigation and have the mitigation ready before customers even had an opportunity to experience the error. And those kinds of things are, are also really valuable when the tooling that we have around our development processes can provide for that. So I was also going to say, we were talking about how Kubernetes, there's a bunch of Kubernetes tools out there, for example, right, that create uh, GUIDs that you can pass through your app, for example. I mean, I've definitely, on a few different apps at this point, have seen this pattern done where you, uh, Rails app specifically, I'm talking about here since this is the thing we're doing. You create an ID on the start of a request, right? You just kind of keep it in the thread and you just pass it through. 
obviously this is kind of assuming that you are running an MRI Ruby at this point so that you keep the same thread, but you can do homegrown solutions sort of to, that's useful even in a small app, right? Where, for example, in this case, we were just using Passenger or whatever. Passenger maybe had like eight workers or something. So we could have eight simultaneously you know, running requests at the same time. And reading a log, even in that case, can be fairly difficult, right? So knowing that this request came from this particular, you know, user request, you know, is important. Definitely was very useful when reading that log. So even on on small scale apps, some of these techniques like actually have a lot of value, I guess is what I was trying to uh, point. So my question for you that I really wanted to get at is I, I felt like as I was watching your, as I was listening to your talk, I just, the whole entire time, I felt like there were some unmentioned, like motivational pieces behind like some of how you got to where you were. For example, I was trying to imagine, okay, so are you in a shop that like maybe doesn't have the resources, for example, to address all the errors? And maybe that's why you had to focus on value. Or uh, perhaps you were in a shop that really valued logs or something, right? And was just like, oh no, we don't do bug snack or sentry or air break or whatever it is. So I was just, I, I was kind of curious if you could give us like more context, maybe how you ended up in the situation that caused you to go through all this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, so I was working for uh, another local company here in Utah and they, they had adopted a microservice uh, approach and they had logging capabilities. They had, uh, what was it, a distributed logging system that was kind of collating everything together, made things searchable in a reasonable way. They, they had adopted Bugsnag for a number of their services, but not all of the services that were running in this ecosystem. And so we had some level of visibility. Where we started running into kind of the pain points was that we were not in a good position to kind of say, okay, well, we're seeing these errors. Since we're looking at a staging environment, we were preparing a particular service for release into production. We're seeing these errors at kind of a fairly low volume, at least from our, from our standpoint. It's like there's only maybe 10 errors a day. It's like, is this a big deal or not? And we weren't really in a position to actually answer that question, which is what kind of led me into saying, well, we need something more than even what Bugsnag is providing. We need something that is able to tell us of the events that are starting, how many are failing. And that's where we then layered on, we use signal effects as the tool for this, but then layered on a metric system on top of what was essentially a background job processor. And that's what revealed to us kind of immediately that in our staging environment, every job that was starting was also failing. That the errors that we were seeing, while there weren't a large number of them because we were in a staging environment, it was literally every single job we were trying to process was failing. And so we had a system that if we had just depended on the bug snag side of things and didn't dig a little deeper to look at, okay, what's the actual volume of data going through this system, we might have had a false signal. It's like, yeah, this thing's ready to go into production. Yeah, we know it gets some errors, but maybe they're fine. And so it was that idea of increasing visibility even further, being able to answer other questions that really drove uh, a lot of this consideration around visibility, especially, because we just didn't know what the what the scale of the problem was. And once we actually figured that out, we realized, oh, it's 100% failure rate. It's like, that's, that can't go into production. Yeah, so, so a lot of this was you had to understand, or you didn't even, it sounds like you didn't have a good understanding of what your, at least in this case, your staging, right? Error context was like, oh, 10 errors is normal for staging or whatever, where, you know, it's different for everyone, right? Like there are definitely people that have hand or that tolerate larger amounts of errors and there are people that tolerate zero. So, yeah. Yeah. And in the environment that we were in, the type of data that we were handling, like we expect a certain volume of errors just because of who some of our data sources were that were populating this service. We knew that they would occasionally send us just absolute garbage. And so we knew our system would error out because it had tighter standards than what they were sending us. But, but seeing that it was 100% error rate, but was it was the clue? It's like, oh, no, this service is definitely not ready yet. Yeah, which is a reasonably good segue, I feel like, to some of the interesting things that you talked about later on in your talk. Just about, it, so you're ta now talking about having third-party dependencies, right? Which 
you know, just introduces like a completely new variable into the equation. You don't have complete control over it. You, this is when you have to, when you're getting inputs from people that could be error prone or you're giving outputs, right? And you talked about, well, actually, would you kind of enumerate on those? You had like a couple different points around this, right? Yeah, and and some of these points were informed predominantly by another service that I worked on in the in the same organization around the idea of returning what you can. In this particular case, one of the services that I had worked on received inputs from a number of different services, all partial data. And at some point in the process, some of the data that it had in its database became corrupted. We're not sure if that came... Uh, from the migration from a previous service, or we had a service that was uh, sending us bad data that we were accepting. But at some point, we ended up with our database in a wonky state that would have normally caused our service to, to, to have an error or caused most services to have an error. That's like you have data that is invalid when you go to try and pull it out of the database, and, and, and naturally you fail when you do that. In this case, though, because of the particular requirements around this service, we didn't need to have any one data point necessarily represented in the results. And so if we had invalid data in our database, we could just not return it and it would be fine. And so we uh, adopted an approach with this particular service of whatever data we have, uh, return whatever is valid. Knowing that we had some inputs that were coming in that, what was it, had caused pollution in our database. We wanted to track those down, but in the meantime, let's return what we can. And so actually built some, some tooling into the service so that when it tried to pull something out of the database, if it wasn't able to deserialize the data into a usable form, it would just throw it away and return whatever else it had available. And so in this one particular case, that worked out really well for us to be able to return a picture of what we were representing, which was essentially a data aggregator, and being able to return what we had that was valid and then throwing away the stuff that wasn't. So that was actually a really useful uh, approach to take in this case where returning some data was better than returning no data at all, which were the kind of the two competing priorities we had here. On the other side of this, we also had the had to track down eventually how, who's giving us bad data. And, and it turned out to be a front-end system that we were getting dates that were in really crazy formats and, and something that only JavaScript could give you where we were getting undefined dash undefined dash a year rather than an actual valid date format. And it took a little bit for, for us to like sort out exactly why we were getting those bad date formats. But what we were able to do and while that was being worked on by a separate team was able to change this service so that it could actually take whatever garbage dates it got and try to put them into a usable format. In some cases, all we cared about was the year for the date. In other cases, we wanted at least the month and the year. And where we were able to like extract that data uh, from whatever we were sent, we, we were able to come up with a way to do that. And so that allowed us to kind of accept even malformed data and, and make it something usable for, for this particular service, which then, of course, addressed the error from our services perspective while the front end team continued to address like why they were sending undefined when they should be sending a number. Yeah, this makes me, uh, this reminds me a lot of my experience with PayPal circa, I think uh, around 2008, 2010, somewhere around in there. The thing that I was working on, we were using PayPal at the time and you would send a request, you know, for a payment or something like that. And you didn't know what you were going to get back from them. So we did all sorts of things to deal with basically the the junk that we got back from them and we just saved it all because we did because then they would be like hey we need you to verify something later and you have to send us this piece of data and it was just fun yeah and of course tied to the same service one of the things that and this actually ties to when we first discovered that we had the bad data in our database like the one of the immediate results of us encountering that issue when we turned this service on live was that the service sanely initially when it encountered data it couldn't deserialize from the database returned a 500 error which not unusual it wasn't doing it all the time it was just doing it for this one user uh, that had bad data in the system but because our service was returning a 500 error the service above it that was requesting data would also return a 500 error 
And that would return a 500 error up to another layer of services that then cause an entire section of our product to become unavailable for all users because of bad data for just one. And so that then kind of fed into the, the final point that I talked about in the presentation about be careful of who and how you trust. And even in a service-based system where it's like, yeah, we've got control of all the services that are running in this environment, but we still need to make sure that like, well, if this service throws a 500 error, is that going to cause a cascading failure that's going to take down a section of our site? And so how do we mitigate against those kinds of problems and being careful even in a, 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 an environment where we have full control about who we trust and how we trust them and some of those things that, that kind of fed into my perspective of, in general, just avoid dependencies at all costs if you can. The solution is to just rescue from exception, right? Then you don't get cascading failures. Yeah, and uh, that's at least one approach that, that could be taken. It could have been taken at the service directly above us Of course, we ended up addressing it at the lowest level in our service of like, oh, we've got bad data. Well, fine, we'll handle that gracefully in our own system. And then we won't cause this cascading failure. But the cascading failure is still a risk potentially. And so, yeah, every service needs to assume that any services they depend on can and will fail. Uh, I think that's something that uh, a lot of teams that embrace microservices haven't quite uh, gotten into. And that's something that, of course, Netflix in adopting microservices like embraced very early with Chaos Monkey and the Simeon Army and all of those tools that like things are going to break. And of course, they were originally thinking our infrastructure is going to break because at the time that they started deploying this stuff, Amazon would randomly shut off EC2 instances and like there was no recovery plan. And so you had to be able to spin them back up and things of that sort. And so, yeah, stuff's going to break. And in a service-based system, you have no idea when or how or what. Whenever I'm stuck on what to learn next, a lot of times I just go back to the fundamentals and think about how I can make those things more automatic. The reason is, is because then when I focus on the fundamentals, I'm able to actually level up in all the other areas that I'm trying to learn. So I teamed up with Kyle Simpson to focus on the fundamentals of JavaScript. Kyle wrote the books, You Don't Know JS Yet. And his Getting Started ebook goes over just the fundamental fundamentals, so to speak, of JavaScript. And we're putting together a 30-day challenge where you can actually level up on this stuff, get it down pat, and then you can go and learn all of the other things that you're doing that are based on these things. So if you go sign up for the challenge, you can do it at devchat.tv slash bookcamp. That was Kyle's idea. You can get the following as part of the challenge. You get daily training videos, which are worth about 150 bucks. You get daily exercises and homework, which again, are about worth about 97 bucks, especially with the coaching that we give you around them. You get access to the private Slack channel, which is worth about 20 bucks. You get access to a premium podcast series that Kyle and I are going to record. It's an eight-part podcast series where we talk through all the pieces of the book. You'll get three Q&A calls per week, and that puts you at about a $1,779 value. And what's great is you also get then the audio from the podcast, you get the video from the training, you get the experience from working, and you get the visual reading learning from the book. So you're going to learn this in multiple ways. Once again, go sign up at devchat.tv slash bookcamp, devchat.tv slash bookcamp, and you can get it for $197. If you use the code JSJabber, you can get it for $147 instead. So go check it out right now, devchat.tv slash bookcamp. Do you think an application should ever return a 500 error? Ideally, no. That should be a, a very rare situation because, again, it's, it's essentially saying something internal to the system like, is horribly broken. And that will happen from time to time. Like We're going to make mistakes, but we should never accept and tolerate a 500 error. But, okay, I'm going I'm to go down this bit further. We were talking about banking earlier. Suppose I have a system that puts money in your account and I'm trying to give you some money and that system then returns to me a 500 error. Then I think, oh, there's a problem. I I better do something. If that system does not return some kind of 500, you know, help something's gone totally wrong error, how would I know what's gone wrong? Yeah, and I think that's where ideally if we're looking at like HTTP status codes, we should give the most useful error message possible. 
And like we have error messages that indicate unavailability of a service that indicate that like there's a proxy problem somewhere that what was it? I've got data that I don't know what to do with. We've got other error codes. The 500 error, what was it? Tends to be kind of the catch-all for like, we, we can't tell you what went wrong because we don't actually know yet. And that should ideally be a rare occurrence, but it, and it will happen. It's a lazy man's error. Yeah, I, I agree that 500s, in my opinion, should only be used as a last. If you don't catch it and can't return something better, then return a 500 and that's your clue to go in and fix something and return yeah, something and with better granularity. Yeah, I think 500s are a cl- should be a clue to every developer that, what was it, you've got an error state that, that you need to handle better some way. That you couldn't anticipate, for instance, mm-hmm. or, you know, hopefully not just lazy development. But I think we all fall into that trap within Ruby on Rails. Now, if you start up a new Ruby on Rails application, and if you are assuming that maybe the current user variable is set, but it's not. So on one of your pages, you're showing their avatar, current user dot avatar, whatever. If the avatar doesn't exist because the user is nil, then you're going to get undefined method avatar for nil class. And that's going to return a 500 error. So how would, how would someone handle that kind of situation on a simple Rails application where maybe they didn't take that into account? Is there a better way to handle those or you're just going to get the 500 error because you didn't check to see if current user was set yeah i think there's a a few different things and again i agree with you like rails kind of lulls us into kind of a just accept rails default approach to error handling which like if if an active record query what was it uh, doesn't return any results under some conditions it'll raise not found which will then trickle up and become a 404 error and things like that and we just kind of trust that rails is going to take care of like most of the error handling via what it, its form of magic or whatnot in those cases though where we're like we've added our own code that assumes certain things about the system yeah if we if we fail to recognize a reasonable error case and then we get a 500 error like in in the process of actually fixing that issue because again hopefully we're we're figuring out okay well why in this case is current user nil rather than what we expect it to be we'll actually address the issue but then can we actually identify is this a condition that is reasonable to happen in some circumstance because maybe you have we are able to fix the the current user is nil but maybe not every user has an avatar set. And so maybe we need to handle some other error case that, that is revealed to us. And we need to own that and actually give it a name and define it. And then also figure out what error code from like what's going to be presented to the user is going to actually make sense for them. So what was it? Perhaps it's uh, some, some class of 400 error rather than uh, what was it? Uh, a 500 error. And so I think that's, that's where we, do, we need to take ownership of the error cases that actually should and are acceptable to exist within our systems. And to the listeners, if they weren't catching on to my sarcasm, when I said rescue exception, that was kind of a joke that you really should not be rescuing, just swallowing up the exception. Because yeah, then your application will then technically quote have no errors to the end user, but it's going to be a miserable experience. But if you do find yourself in that kind of situation, you should still at least be punished by getting the notification. So whatever error management or notification service you have within the exception, actually have it do the log so it doesn't just get swallowed. So you're at least notified that, hey, there's an issue going on here. We got some kind of error that was overridden and the app just continues on with its request. And along those lines, there's actually some some really uh, good resources for that, like Exceptional Ruby is a good book that kind of deals with error handling in Ruby really well and kind of covers uh, a lot of how to deal with errors versus exceptions in Ruby. And then I'm actually thinking, I cannot remember the title of the talk, but it's from several years back, actually maybe over a decade back now than I'm old. Um, what was it? Uh, Aaron Patterson gave a talk at RubyConf in which he actually demonstrated a Ruby program that was rescuing out of memory conditions and seg faults. 
like in order to what was it, achieve like a zero error application. And of course it was a joke, but what was it is a demonstration of like, yeah, you can, you can go all kinds of bad places if you just blindly rescue your error conditions. I mean, this, this actually brings up a reasonably good point, right? Like, I think that there's probably a nuanced context dependent thing, right? That you have to do for your application in every case, right? I've been on applications where, for example, as you pointed out, your particular application that you were working on was this microsurface. It was pretty focused, right? You haven't told us everything about it, but the the context that I seem to be picking up seems to be it was about taking data out of the database and sort of making it available to other services, right? Or at least that was a thing that it did. And I've worked on apps where, for example, that was actually a thing. And one of the things that we cared about is when avatar, yeah, or I'm sorry, when user.avatar was nil or whatever, right? Or when user was nil. Well, we were like, okay, well, in this context, you know, actually this can happen, you know, so I'm going to return this kind of 400 error or whatever. But in other cases, like, you know, we, for example, rescued active record, like, or whatever it was, the not found thing or whatever. We rescued those and more or less then delivered a custom error page that said that like a resource wasn't found, right? That's not necessarily that much better the user. User doesn't care. They're like, it's broken anyway. That's about as useful as what they tell you is most of the time. But the point was that because we were doing that when we switched to creating an API and then consumed our own API, we were then getting an appropriate error for ourselves, for example. Another thing that I did on another app, for example, similar idea, we returned HTTP request codes that seemed appropriate to us for errors that we knew about. And of course, you know, new errors come in, right? And they start out as 500s and you have to fix them and convert them into other kinds of errors. But when on our API side, we started, we returned status codes, but then we also said, hey, I actually know something about this error. Let me tell the downstream consumer of this API what I know so that they can do something with it, right? And, and that helped us when we, were, when we were providing service to another thing. So there, I mean, I've done things along this vein before that make sense. I don't, I don't necessarily know that you have to rescue from everything because there's clearly times when the answer to a 500 error isn't to rescue, but to maybe fix, you know, oh, well, maybe I should actually make it not possible for someone to request this page if they're not logged in, things like that. But there absolutely are different pathways that you can take. Yeah. yeah. And I actually think uh, that's actually an interesting point that you raise with regards to like giving the downstream consumer of the API or of your application like more helpful guidance in response to an error. This is something that like at Mavenlink, our tech writing team has been driving uh, really well for, for us is like we have some we have some helpful error messages in our API. And we have some helpful error messages that appear in our application, but we also have some really unhelpful ones as well. It's like something went wrong, sorry. It's like if that's the error message that they get for the user. And like that isn't reassuring, that doesn't inspire confidence. And so our tech writers are actually working uh, well with our developers to figure out like in those cases where we have these really generic error messages, can we identify for the user why this error happened? What it is that needs to be corrected? Is it because they don't have permission to do this thing? Is it because, what was it, they sent us something that somebody else has already updated? What's the, what's the condition here that we need to handle and get away from generic error messaging to something that actually guides our user towards a better experience. And I think that's something that's really important to to keep in mind as we're building applications, especially if they're customer facing, is making sure that we're thinking about the customer and how we handle erroring. And then sometimes the customer is us. In the case of APIs, like it'd be really helpful at, from a developer standpoint to get a, a guiding error message that points me at what went wrong rather than you sent me an unprocessable request. It's like, okay, well, what part of it was unprocessable? Can you at least tell me that? Those kinds of things can also be really, really beneficial. I mean, even on small apps, right? Like uh, a common downstream consumer, right, is your JavaScript front end. So, you know, maybe you on the JavaScript side care about knowing why the back end is having a problem. So that's a, that's a common thing. The other thing I was going to say is like in cases like you're talking about, like especially when you're consuming a third party's API, uh, that makes me angry every time. Like, if I get like one of those errors, like 
man, I just sit here and rage in my chair for like the the 15 seconds or whatever before I like am ready to actually like deal with the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So rescuing exceptions, if you're doing that within your application, just a standard catch-all, to me, that means that there's very little confidence that this code is going to work. That's why you have to put that in there. And, you know, exceptions, of course, but then returning an unhelpful exception or just the generic one that we're talking about, I think that we we think that that's good enough. Like, oh, yeah, then we'll look into the issue. But the end result of that is going to be the client, the end user, getting some kind of generic exception, like there's a problem. And then they're going to give you a bug report. They're going to hopefully submit a bug report. They don't remember the steps that they took. They weren't paying attention. They were just trying to use the application. So they're not going to remember in detail how to reproduce that error. So they're just going to say, it's broken. Well, that's about as useful as a one terabyte size log file. You know, it doesn't really do you any good. Yeah, sure, you've made me aware that there's a problem, but then what are you going to do about it? You know, they can't provide any details. So giving useful exception messages, I think is, you know, definitely important. And it's something I'm guilty of not doing myself. So the other thing, you know, kind of to back up John's point about the APIs and dealing with those, please be consistent. (laughs) If you're making an API, don't in one API endpoint have the, like the status, like status code camel cased. And then in another API response, have it status underscore code. You know, be consistent in how you respond. So that way there is some level of expectation and consistency. That's a rabbit hole unto itself, but 100% agree. (laughs) Another tool that I, I mentioned during the talk that I think is actually really valuable in cases where we get those unhelpful error reports from users is if you're going to have nothing but generic what was it, error responses you're giving to your user, you should probably layer on a tool like LogRocket, which ties in with tools like Bugsnag and Sentry and others, but it actually connects a bit of session recording to the error handling so that you can see the the actions the user was taking up until the moment of the error to give you that context that your bug reports are almost certainly going to be missing if you're not giving helpful error messages in the application itself. And so that's another tool that I've used at another, at another firm that was really, really useful in being able to discover like, okay, what actually was going on when this error occurred? Because that's, that's really helpful context and something that every bug report asks for, but not every user can even remember or recall what was going on, and at least not all of what was going on. That brings up a good point, I think, because you know the world is a messy place, so of course we have to deal with errors. But then there are largely presentation errors, like your little avatar example. And then there's data manipulation or mutation type of errors. And some of those things, especially when you get into background jobs, you can just either rescue, you can retry the job, you can do that. If you're trying to pull something out of it, maybe you can do that. But there are other types of things, like say, for instance, payment processing. You don't want to complete the transaction, be storing the result of it, get some sort of, you know, can't write to the database error, and then throw an exception and tell it to retry, that's going to create a very angry customer. And, and so, so at that point, you know, some of this error handling can, might need to be rolled up to the application layer so that you store all of those bits and pieces and you get that success back and it returns an error state and you do it very safely in order to check all of that and make sure that when someone looks at it, they know exactly what happened. And especially I find when you're dealing with customers' money, you definitely want to know exactly what happened and when. And then you can go in after the fact, number one, correct the situation, and then two, uh, be able to reprocess, refresh, and clean up all of the statuses for whatever your application logic needs to be. Yeah, and that's actually something that comes up in, in, in service-based systems that, that's interesting to observe is like those transaction boundaries. Like what are the things that like operationally need to stay together? And that's something that I think that gets overlooked as well. In like monolithic systems, it's easy. Everything, we just assume everything happens. What was it in the transaction that is a request response cycle? But what was it in a service-based system? Like you may have different services 
that are handling different parts of like the payment processing and, uh, and execution flow. And in those cases, like you've now created a distributed transaction environment that is incredibly hard to manage and bordering on impossible in some cases, depending on like how big it gets. So that's something to be considered about as well when talking about service-based systems is make sure that you know where your transaction boundaries are. What are the things that have to happen together in order for us to be in a good state? So one question that I have that kind of sums up a lot of the things that we've been talking about is that there's a service for that. There's a third-party service that we can use to consume to get better information about what's going on with the health of our Rails applications. So my question is around, I'm not a very experienced log manager kind of person that knows a lot of services out there. I go and look at some of these services and they each seem to do their own kind of unique thing. Some are $100 a month, some are $70 a month. So as someone coming into error handling and that kind of stuff, what services would you say at a minimal they should be looking into investing? Because in reality, all these services are great, but they start adding up dollar-wise, and it's almost going to start costing more than the actual hosting of the application if you're a small business. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really valid concern to have. When we think about any of these kind of visibility tools, it's all a cost-benefit trade-off scenario. We have to be thinking about, okay, how much is it going to cost me to be able to have this level of visibility, and is it worth it to me? If it's not going to end up saving you money or better making you money, then maybe the trade-off isn't worth it. So like services that I that I like, and they're, and they're multiple in these same spaces. So things like paper trail, that is good for like log aggregation across multiple systems. It's, it's a good service for that. There are also, if you're using AWS um, or Azure or Google Cloud, they have their own log aggregation stuff that works within their ecosystem that are also worth considering. For things like bug reporting, error rate tracking, bug snag, Sentry, New Relic. But in all these cases, you're, you're basically looking for like what's going to get you the value you want at the price point that you're willing to pay. And I've worked for enough small companies that weren't willing to pay anything for this kind of visibility. And in that situation, unfortunately, you're stuck, especially if you're a contractor, because like you're just making recommendations and you're not having to pay the bill. So... Uh, you don't get to make the final call. But in organizations of a certain scale, what was it, with a certain uh, amount of revenue, at some point, it's going to actually end up costing you a lot more than these services are ever going to cost you to not have this kind of visibility. But it's it's absolutely a trade-off that has to be made on a case-by-case basis. You can evaluate these tools too. So for example, one that we haven't mentioned today or actually, there's there's two error handling that I don't think we've mentioned. Airbrake, which used to be Honey Badger, if you remember that way back in the day, and Rollbar. But they all like so so Rollbar, Airbrake, Bugsnag, and Sentry are all more or less basically the same thing. They all do like error handling, and they all have like slightly different like free tiers and ways that you pay for them, right? So there's there's usually like a lot of variation in how you pay. So sometimes the small company that you're referring to can take advantage of that. So, I mean, I would definitely, if you're like looking at that and you don't want to pay, like look at as many of them as you can. I've totally done that on multiple occasions where the only reason that we picked one provider or the other is because the free tier just fit us better. Yeah. And that's the same thing comes back to like the same decisions about hosting. Like, what was it? What, why choose Heroku? It's like, well, if you can stick within their free tier, yeah, just do it. Same thing with AWS. If you can consume their services and stay within the free tier, why not? Yep. Just to reiterate, Sentry does allow you to self-host at no cost. So if you have some available server space, you can host it yourself. Now you take on the management and sustainability of that server. However, that is an alternative. One other alternative that may be worth uh, mentioning there, and I don't know if it's still actively maintained because I haven't had to use it in years now, but there was a, a gym. Was it exceptional? There, it, was, it was basically anytime you had a, a hard error thrown in your application, it would rescue it initially, send you an email, and then, what was it, let the error bubble up. 
Uh, and so there's exception notification gym. There we go. Yeah. Exception notification gym. Yeah. And so that's an easy one. Like, uh, what was it to get you visibility? Like when you're first starting out, like maybe while you're evaluating these other tools. Airbit is E-R-R-B-I-T is the open source version. I believe, I I believe it's a fork from Airbrake way back in the day or Honey Badger, one of the two, but you can self-host that one too. So there are options out there. There's also the heavy option of using Elastic Stack. They have Logstash, they have APM solutions, but you can visualize data in any which way you want to. But there, you're not necessarily at a cost advantage because the amount of resources that some of those applications run require more than $70 worth of hardware a month. (laughs) Not to mention the amount of knowledge you have to spend hours upon hours of wasting to just figure out their syntax and setting stuff up and getting things working properly. I've been down that road before. It's not a fun road. Yeah, it's a huge, that, that's a buy versus build and an ROI calculation again at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, I think the big point is there are a lot of choices, right? E- even on the, the visualization side, like I don't remember, I think we mentioned SignalFX. I don't, I'm not super familiar with SignalFX particularly, but I think uh, commonly used ones like New Relic and AppSignal are fairly familiar to people for helping you monitor various you know, health aspects of your application, things like that. There's just choices like everywhere that you can use to help manage a lot. Yeah, so SignalFX, uh, what was it, is actually an interesting one because like, they have some like canned metric reporting systems like for like CPU utilization, all those kind of like bare hardware metrics and a few application-oriented ones. But where SignalFX like, really came in and was useful in the context that I used it in, uh, was in kind of the building your own metric system. So building application level metrics that like New Relic can't discover for me because they don't they don't know the code. They don't know what this thing is actually doing. And so signal effects is really helpful when you get to that stage of wanting to like build custom metric systems, custom dashboards uh, for reporting on the things that that require a business knowledge of what the service is doing. Cool. James, I liked your comment in the talk, or and I think you mentioned it earlier in the, in the conversation here today, that just anything that's not visible is liable to get ignored, and anything that's not visible is hard to fix. So I, I definitely love um, that idea and subscribing to that in terms of just show everything and show the good, the bad, and the ugly. Obviously, you need to show it at the appropriate levels. You don't want to be showing... Uh, a banking transaction error to a user and, or, and alarm them, but at least capturing that information, you have something you can work with later. Absolutely. Right. Well, James, if people want to follow some of the things that you're doing online, where should they go? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter and most other places online as plain programmer, P L A I N programmer. You can also visit my blog, james.thomps.onl. Uh, it's a little weird domain, so but it has my name in it, so I like it. So that's a good place to, to follow some of my writing and things like that. And maybe once we're out of this whole coronavirus situation, I'll be able to start talking at conferences again, but we'll have to wait and see on that. Awesome. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby on Rails? Maybe you were sad that you missed out on some of the interactions you could have gotten at RailsConf, but you're still not sure you want to travel because of COVID-19? Well, I'm putting on a Rails Remote Conf. We're doing it in August, and it's going to feature a lot of your favorite people from the Ruby Rogues panel and other friends and neighbors across the community. So if you want to join in the fun, come watch some of the RailsConf video talks with us during a live watch party online. And then come see all of the live talks the next three days. Then come check us out at railsremoteconf.com. That's railsremoteconf.com. Well, it's great having you on here. And so let's move on to some picks. Luke, do you want to start us off? I got a pick. My pick is the Async Sinatra gem. It's an old gem. It's been around for a long time. And the reason I picked it was because I was in the situation where I've been playing with WebSockets and server sent events. And I tried a, a huge different number of things to try and get the effect I wanted. And the thing that worked with the minimum effort was a essentially single endpoint async Sinatra service running, running on a thin web server. 
and then pushing through to the either Nginx or Apache forwarding. That really was a very low effort way of getting long polling or, you know, this kind of server push system that degraded really nicely. Very low effort, great result. It's an old gem, but I couldn't find a better way to do it. So async Sinatra. Cool. And Matt, do you want to jump in with some picks? Sure. I'm just going to go for one today. If you've ever used Terraform, one solution that I've been looking at recently is Pulumi. And it's very similar to Terraform, but the two key things that I think are very interesting is one, it allows you to write in other languages besides some arbitrary language. Uh, You can use, they initially support a JavaScript, but they've also got uh, Python and some .NET languages as well, and Go even now. They have very decent libraries and documentation as of lately that I've seen. And then they also let you do some running some scripts and with dependencies on the actual server resources you set up and do them in order and ways that are massively less complicated, it appears, than Terraform. So if, you, if you're in, an, in the need for that, I would say check it out. Awesome. And John, do you have any picks for us today? I do. So, you know, I've been spending a lot of time at home as as many people have. And one of the things that we just kind of stumbled into doing, we just pulled out some puzzles and we've just had like this running puzzle thing. My three-year-old son really loves these thousand piece puzzles for whatever reason. It's, it's cool. But yeah, we just basically have a family puzzle running like all the time now. And we started doing... The thing that I'm recommending is we started doing this exchange. You know, we only have so many puzzles. We started doing this exchange with like some of our friends, which is cool for my son because if if you have kids, you may or not be familiar with uh, some of the kid shows that are out there. And I don't remember off the top of my head which one it is, but there's this one where they're on like this pirate ship and there's some sort of like finding place. Anyway, it's a game for him and all of his friends watch it. And they have finding places at their house. He, we have a finding place at our house. So our friends come over and not all the time, but they like come and drop off stuff in the finding place for my son to find. And we do the same on theirs. Anyway, so we've been trading puzzles that way. And that's just kept everybody like with new puzzles all the time. So, you know, your local puzzle exchange program that you can make yourself. That's what I'm recommending today. Awesome. I'll jump in with the pick. So my first pick is a service called rubidium.io. It is a project that I've created. And the idea behind it is to be able to add complex functionality to your applications quickly. It's targeted to Ruby on Rails. And essentially, it's a library of templates that you can add to your Ruby on Rails applications Instead of having to go through a gem file or a gems readme, go through all the documentation of how to install it within your application, this, you just want a one-line script, and it'll add all of that functionality that you want right into your existing Ruby on Rails application. So it's a project that I have started up, and I am really, really into right now because not only is it going to save me a lot of time, hopefully it'll save everyone a lot of time. And the beauty about it is anytime you run a script, its code is very visible to you. So you can always review it. You're never running something that you don't know uh, that what's going to happen to your Rails application. And the second pick is Slim Gem Files. So the project is pretty much completed. And I'm just now adding in libraries and content into the application. So Keeping a slim gem file means that you're going to be able to maintain your application in a much easier fashion. So upgrading gems and stuff when trying to upgrade your Rails application version is really tough. So I'm happy that this project is using only two gems outside of the Rails default ones. So trying to keep your gem file as slim as possible is my second pick. And James, do you have any picks? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll go with uh, two that are actually closely related. One is the annotated American Gods. So American Gods being the book by Neil Gaiman. The annotated version uh, was put out recently by uh, Leslie Klinger as the editor. And it's great, full of awesome illustrations, uh, great explanations of like the mythology that Gaiman is drawing on and numerous other kind of just fun items included alongside the main text of the book. And then the other uh, one that's also related is uh, Dark Horse Comics has been running, uh, what was it, uh, their American Gods graphic novel series. They've got volumes one and two available uh, right now, and volume three will be out in June. And so looking forward to seeing how that particular uh, comic continues to, to be developed. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, James, it was great to talk with you and hope to see you at a Rails conference. Yeah. Hope to see you all too. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Take care. Right. Everyone take care. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.